Hey everybody. I'm Ian Swanson. I'm the uh, general manager of Amazon Elasticsearch Service. Uh, reInvent's a crazy time. You have so many sessions that you could choose from. These are my favorite. These are my favorite because you get to hear from people that are in the trenches, doing the work, working hard on things like observability. Uh, Amazon Elasticsearch Service, you know, we provide a managed solution that makes it super simple to deploy, to manage, to scale Elasticsearch and Kibana. And with partners like Intuit and Bology, we're able to see extreme success in terms of all the logs that we're collecting and the metrics that we're getting and what we're able to do with it. So what I'm excited to learn today is from Bology and team, what is Intuit doing in observability? Let's give a hand. Thank you so much. Let me start with a quick introduction. Balaji Arunachalam, Engineering Director, leading the observability platform for Intuit. Been with Intuit 14 years. Various roles including site reliability engineering and data engineering, so my natural next step is observability. I also have Nagaraja Tantri, who is a staff software engineer and also one of my technical leads, here to answer some of the toughest questions. Um, how many of you here worked on observability? Are any familiar with observability? Okay, that's great. So, before I get started, people who are probably not so familiar with Intuit, our mission at Intuit is powering prosperity around the world using our products such as TurboTax and Mint for consumers and QuickBooks for small business and self-employed. So, in 2017, there was a study done by Gartner on, to understand the impact of outages on companies' revenue. In short, 23% companies are losing at least $1 million in revenue for every one hour of outage. Where do you think Intuit stacks up in the graph? My guess will be all the way in the top. Quick question, how many of you here wait until the last few days to file your taxes? Quite a lot. Thanks to all of you, those last few days are some of the most exciting time for us because we do see an extreme surge in traffic on those days that I can't imagine having a single minute of downtime. Let's look at the role of observability in reducing the outage duration. For that, probably we have to start with what is MTTR, which is mean time to re repair or recover. At Intuit, we have a budget given for every, everybody that we have 22 minutes maximum outage in a month. It's based on our target uptime of 99.95%. So what it means is if you have one incident in a month, you have a maximum 22 minutes to recover from the incident. If you have two incidents, your budget cuts half, so you only have 11 minutes. So you do get penalized for having more incidents by you know, setting more aggressive targets for MTTR. So let's break down the MTTR metrics. There's two phases in MTTR, which is first is the detection phase, and the second is recovery phase. So MTTD, which, is, which stands for mean time to detect, is actually the time it takes for a human being or ideally a mission to identify there's a problem in your system. So it's usually the time it takes for you to receive that first alert saying that a problem is in your system. Followed by the recovery phase, which further can be split into three parts. First part is the isolation. When, there, there is, when you identify a problem in your system, then you have to identify which service is causing the problem. It is very common in microservice environment with numerous dependencies, you have seen people playing 
you know, hot potato games, right? Passing the responsibility from one team to another. So we have seen that. So after you identify which service and team is responsible for it, the next step is solution. So we, we call this MTTS, which is mean time to solution. So solution varies based on the cost of the problem. So a cost being a code deployment happened last night, the solution will be rollback. If there is a specific problem in your region, one, one region, the, the solution will be failover to a different region. Or if you have a problem with one of your third party vendor dependency, the solution will be pulling a contingency. So the solution varies based on the problem. Once you have the solution in your hand, now the time is spent on implementing it. So that whole thing forms the MTTR. So when we looked at observability, it plays a huge role in these three areas, detection, isolation, and solution. Today we'll talk about some of the observability capabilities we have built in order to attain our aggressive MTTR target. First look at why we actually, actually have to think about what we are doing wrong. So everything was simple when we were living inside our own data center with a handful of monolithic legacy services. Our monitoring solution worked fine, but things got complicated rightfully because we moved to cloud and also started breaking down our monolithic services into microservices. These services were hosted in EC2 containers, some are in containers, sorry, EC2 and some are in containers, some are even actually serverless. So we even saw just one year 200% growth in our metrics throughput. Our monitoring solution did not scale. The data, especially metrics, started arriving 10 minutes or 15 minutes delayed to our dashboards and alerts. So that directly translated to our mean time to detect, which always had at least 10 minutes of delayed detection. And last one, these metrics, especially metrics and logs coming from various services and systems, arrived siloed in different backends. So for us, it was very hard to correlate and isolate issues during an incident. So we knew that there was a problem we have to solve for. So before we get into observability, let's quickly look at the three important pillars of observability. Metrics, logs, and traces. And we call it as air, water, and food because metrics is so critical that that actually plays a huge role as part of detection. Metrics is nothing but a numeric data which can be represented and reported in time series fashion. So it could be your service level indicators such as CPU, um, error rates of your service, throughput numbers, latency numbers. Logs is usually a timestamp record of a discrete event happened in your system. For example, a successful transaction could have a log saying status code 200 with a response <coughs> time in it. And then a, a failed transaction could have more context around what went wrong in it. Traces, on the other hand, is a little bit different, shows a full user journey across multiple services in your ecosystem. The easy way to remember between logs and traces is a, a quick example is when you go for a road trip from one point to another with various stop ins between, traces tells you all the stops you had and also the time you spent on each of the stop. Whereas logs tells you what you really did not did on each of the stop, especially if you're spending too much time, it'll tell you like what you actually spend the time on. At Intuit, we do have one more pillar other than all these three, which is not represented here. It's called change events. What we found was two out of three incidents were caused by changes. Somebody doing a code deployment or somebody making some changes in AWS resources or even somebody just flipping a feature flag caused as an incident. So we do consider as an additional pillar, which is not here, but we have actually been tracking pretty aggressively. 
Let's look at where we started, technically. So we had our data coming as metrics, logs, and traces from various assets, including backend services, front-end UI, various AWS resources. The first problem we had was these data was you know, arriving as batches. We didn't have a streaming pipeline. Because of that, we had very little opportunity to do any enrichment, aggregation, or even optimization of the data. So the data came into the backend store as is, so we had actually had a huge storage cost. And also, especially the metrics which is stored in the time series database, we had a huge problem because, <coughs> because the data was unstructured and also had very low cardinality and context support. And we really, really loved our log management system, so people started using us as a monitoring system as well. So people started running uh, scheduled queries in the log management system to pull metrics out of it. So we started seeing capacity constraints on the log management system. And we didn't have a single distributed tracing solution across Intuit, so every team had their own trace solution. So in order to trace, it was impossible to trace a transaction end-to-end uh, -end for a customer which actually spans across services with, from different teams. So we knew that we have to change everything what we are doing. This is our target state at a high level. I'm saying it's a target state because it's not a current state. We have made a huge progress in our target state using some of the capabilities we have built, but we still have a long way to go. The first change we did was we moved from batch process to stream processing. We have stream pipelines for all of our metrics, logs, and traces. Now it actually opened up a huge opportunity for us to do aggregations, enrichment, and reduction in um, some of the data we are actually persisting in the backend store, especially logs. So we know people you know, tend to do a lot of logs. We now have an opportunity to do filter logs, for example. And we also did an initiative to um, address the metrics um, in our backend as well. So we actually brought in an intuit-wide uh, common taxonomy for some of the commonly used metrics so now we actually can support structured data with high cardinality. And the last one is the more interesting one is that we started using open tracing um, Agar solution to bring in an Intuit-wide distributed solution uh, for tracing. So with all that, I think we are now making huge progress in terms of our target. In the next several slides, Naga and I will take you through each one of these areas and showcase some of the capabilities we have built. Go ahead, Naga. Thank you, Balaji. Quick show of hands, please. How many of you are familiar with tracing here? Awesome, awesome. And how many of you are using it in your application today? Nice. A quick intro. So as Balaji mentioned in one of his previous slides, for Intuit's product to serve a single user or an API request, are hundreds of services that are invoked behind the scene to compose its response. These services are often owned by different teams and different functional group and also distributed across network. Right? So when a customer complains about slowness in your application or an alarm is triggered for the same reason, then there are some common questions that pop up. Right? Which flow or which request had issues? Is one of my component having an issue or is it a dependent service that is having a problem? Is dependent service throwing an error or is it just slower than usual, right? Typically in such cases, what do we do? Uh, we take the time window as the input and try to dig through the logs, hoping that we find something useful. We also 
pull in teams from dependent services to help us troubleshoot this issue. As you can see, this process is very time consuming, involves many people, and often we don't find the root cause of the issue. So whom do we blame if we don't find the root cause? Uh, we blame it on network, right? <laughs> so uh, distributed tracing actually helps in addressing this issue. It's a process of tracking a request end-to-end -end as it traverses through multiple systems in near real time. Some of the commonly used terms is a trace. So for example, if you, are, you have a service which you are dependent on three or four different microservices, the entire journey of the request through those four microservices is a trace, and the span is the individual microservice that you invoke uh, within that request. Let me share Intuit's journey in adopting open tracing. Right? In the past few years, <coughs> in the past few years, each team had some or the other form of trace logs. Right? So it was very helpful when they wanted to debug their service and find what the issue is. But the problem with that is that each of these teams had their own log format. They were emitting it in their own time zone settings and also they were being sent to the functional group specific backend store, right? As a result of this, a holistic view was missing. Our first attempt was to use the Intuit's proprietary one Intuit tracing library. We had some amount of success with this. So each service team can pull down this library, add it as dependency in their uh, service, and do a bit of instrumentation, right? And then they get the, the log format is consistent, time zone is, set, time zone is already set, and all of these logs were being sent to a central uh, log backend store. But soon we realized uh, we ran into another problem. Right? So at Intuit, there's a variety of tech stack, libraries, and frameworks being used. So we have services running in Go, Java, Python, et cetera. So for a small team like us, it was impossible for us to keep track of each and every library, maintain versions of it. Uh, so that is when we decided it's time to switch to open tracing. Now, each app team can use any library that is available as open source, and they will get uh, the tracing logs going in. Right? For the services that were already using our library, we didn't want them to do the instrumentation again. So for that, we updated our library to be open tracing compliant, and they would get the benefit of it by just switching to the newer version. This is a high-level overview of how we have set up distributed tracing system uh, in the Kubernetes environment. At Intuit, we use our own Kubernetes, we manage our own Kubernetes cluster. So each service, based on its responsibility, gets its own cluster, and the services within them are broken down or have separate namespaces. At Intuit, we use Agar. Uh, Agar is a distributed tracing system released as open source by Uber Technologies. It has a wide collection of instrumentation library in Go, Java, Python, and it's also one of the project in the graduated category in CNCF. It, it fitted perfectly fine with the tech stack that is being used at Intuit. Right? So whenever a cluster comes up, 
there is an agar agent that is created as a daemon set at the node level. So for all the services that are running at the pod, they emit trace log and send it to this agar agent. Agar agent then periodically dispatches this to an agar collector, which is running in its own cluster. Agar collector, you can configure a different storage backend. In our case, we are using Elasticsearch. So Agar collector commits all these trace log to Elasticsearch. Uh, Agar also provides a UI, which service team can access to access all the trace log, do their analysis and troubleshooting. So <coughs> with the services that were already onboarded to our tracing system, we had to support close to 350K transactions per second. Right? So to get to that number, we had to tweak multiple configuration, both at the Agar collector side, as well as the Elasticsearch side, to get to that number. We had to run multiple iterations of it, record the test results, and then land on towards the sweet spot. So this is the Agar collector configurations that were, some of the Agar collector configuration that worked out well for us. And in the next slide, we'll go through the Elasticsearch one. So Agar collector internally has a internal queue, which uh, it stores the trace log temporarily. And then there are workers that can dequeue from, the, uh, from these queue and puts it into the processing pipeline. So for that, we set it at 60. And the storage client side, there are a couple of settings. One is the flush interval. So flush interval is how frequently you want to flush the data to Elasticsearch. Uh, we set it at 200 milliseconds. And how many workers you want, uh, want to uh, use to commit to the Elasticsearch. And that, we set it at five. For the Elasticsearch side, uh, one of the first thing that we had to do is to raise a support ticket and let them know that our cluster needs to be pre-warmed. <coughs> and then the refresh interval. So the default interval, refresh interval is one second. What that means is uh, any time a query or a trace log is committed to the Elasticsearch, it will be available within one second. So uh, that, even though that looks enticing, um, it had an impact on your ingestion rate. So we changed it to 30 seconds, uh, for which we did not have, uh, we, we got better write throughput with the 30 second configuration. So with the Elasticsearch, the data is organized in index, and each index consists of multiple primary shards and zero or more replica shards. Each shard is an instance of Lucene index, and always there is an active index where the right request go into. What we found out is, if you spread out your shards across the nodes, that is when you get maximum throughput. So whenever we had more than one active primary shard per node, we saw that there were span drops. The shard size is at 50 GB, lesser than that. Uh, so we have a cron job that is periodically monitoring the size as well as the document count at each shard level. And whenever it reaches, let's say, for the primary shard at 50 GB, it automatically rolls over to a newer index. So with all these configuration changes, we were able to achieve 60K TPS 
with 20 nodes on a i3 2XL, 2XL instance and 350K TPS with the 40 nodes on i3 16XL instance. We use the i3 instance mainly because it is optimized, by, optimized for high I.O. operations. So the capacity need, as more and more services are going, uh, will use the distributed tracing system, we estimate it to be close to 2 million traces per second. Right? So one way would be to add more nodes on the Elasticsearch, bump up the, the collector side as well. But then we want to be a bit more smarter and also be more cost effective. So we are looking at the, some of the sampling strategies that are available. One, the, the most common one is the head sampling. This is where the root span decides whether to sample it or not, right? You can, there are variations with that. So for example, there's a constant uh, strategy where all of your requests will be sampled or nothing will. There is also a probabilistic where if you set it to, let's say, 0.1, that means one in every 10 requests would be sampled. There is also a rate limiting where you can say, for I want to sample 100 traces per second. These sampling decisions is made at the service level, right? So now if you have a service with multiple endpoints, and let's say one of the endpoints accepts thousands of uh, transactions per second, whereas other services have lesser transactions per second, there's high chance that the one with the lower TPS would never get sampled, right? So for that, there is a, a variation of head sampling called the adaptive sampling where you can sample based on the endpoint or the, based on the operation name. The next one is the tail sampling, which is very interesting and also gives you much more uh, dimensions to filter or sample your trace logs by. Right? So you can do something like sample by error code. So you want to do a 100% sampling of your 5xx errors, whereas for the 2xx errors, you may want to just sample one in thousands of requests. You can also sample based on latency. So these are some of the things that we are exploring in this uh, journey towards observability. Let's do a quick demo. All right. Thank you, Balaji. You can have this. So I have registered myself as a self-employed in the QuickBooks app. And this is the dashboard page of that service. So as you can see, there is a lot of data that is being pulled out and presented to the user. Right? You have profit and loss, expenses, accounts, travels, invoices, etc. All of this data is actually pulled from different microservices, and they are composed together to give you this uh, data. I, I definitely have to improve my business. Uh, I'm in loss, and also I have, I have to pay some taxes, so, which is not good. Let me walk you through the assistant workflow, which is a chatbot application, right? So whatever questions you post, it tries to understand the intent of it, and then invokes the appropriate backend. So you can ask things like, oh, how much do I owe, right? Or how much do I travel? And then also you can do a voice command and get uh, details. Uh, whatever questions you want to ask, you can ask there. Now let's see how this actually shows up in the 
the Eager UI, which is the, the distributed tracing system. So for those who are not familiar with the Eager UI, on the left-hand side, you have filter capability. You can filter by your services, operations, and also tags. Generally, tags are very useful. So for example, you can now filter by saying, uh, filter out all the traces which have error code of 500, right? In my case, um, I know my user ID, and that is what I'm using to filter down my traces. You can also filter by latency. You can configure the minimum and maximum duration and get only the traces specific to that. The data that you saw behind the scene, on, or sorry, on the dashboard, was the result of the invocation of all these microservices. Let's take a closer look at one of the requests uh, that we did for the QuickBook Assistant workflow. So this is a deep dive of, to one of the requests, right? So, <coughs> sorry. As you can see, this whole request took about 1.52 seconds, and there are five services involved in this processing of this request. I mentioned about sampling strategy. So right now we are using the constant one. That means it kind of samples each and every request. And looking at the number, you will see that this is an asynchronous flow, right? So the send event will just send it to an internal queue and it gets a response immediately back within 32 seconds, milliseconds. Now let's see what happens next, right? If I scroll down, I see that the the conversation framework again pulls the request from the queue and then passes, passes it down to the QuickBook assistant service, right? So QuickBook's assistant service is the one which is actually doing the bulk of the work that is trying to understand what is the intent of the user's request. So that took about 359 milliseconds. And once it understands the intent, it then invokes the appropriate backend call. So here you see that it understood that my intent was to find out all the paid invoices. So it makes the call to that specific microservice and gets, out, gets all the data that is needed. There are tags and process tags that you can associate with each and every span. Tag is something very, gen uh, very specific to each and every request. Whereas process is more of a static one, so for example, host or a Kubernetes cluster, et cetera, that can be added as tags. One other thing is, it's not only the, the microservice invocation that happens within your system, right? You can also emit traces for any important component within your service. So for example, verifying the ticket is an important step in processing that request. So we can emit trace log for that as well. Similarly, any database calls. So you can emit trace log for that as well, and you can see that it emits the, the actual query that was run for this uh, to get the data. So typically, we use this in the observability space for troubleshooting and try, trying to find insight. But the most important thing, which I personally like, is for a new developer who joins the team, right? Uh, if you give that person this tool and then your source code repo, they can instantly understand how your service is working in a, in a distributed environment. What are the services it is invoking? So they get a complete overview 
instead of just looking at some static document which may or may not be accurate over a period of time. Let me show a live demo on how the index and cluster looks like on the Elasticsearch side. So I'm going to hop over to the Kibana dashboard. So uh, I'm the Elasticsearch that is there, it is actually deployed in VPC, so I cannot directly access it um, through my system. But what I have is I have a SSS tunnel through the Bastion host I'm connecting to the Elasticsearch here. You can run any type of queries here. You can also pull out traces. Uh, but here I just wanted to show a bit more information about the index and the shards uh, that are in play. The first API is the aliases, right? So Agar collector as well as the Agar UI does not directly interact with the actual index they use alias. So behind the scene, we can rotate the index without bothering the, the, the client, uh, both in the uh, consumer as well as the, the producer side. Right? So the agar span read is the one that is used by agar UI to get all the data. And it, as you can see, it is pointing to all the available index. Now, uh, it, it is pointing to all the index because it has to query across all the, um, across all the index and get the data. But if you look at the span write, which is for writing the trace log, it's only pointing to the current active shard. Let's take a closer look at the index itself. Right? So this one gives you all the index that are currently available in the system, how many shards are there, a primary and replica shards, and what's the current usage in terms of document count and the shard size. Let's see how the shards are distributed across the node. So as you can see in this, the, I'm just pointing, querying based on alias. Internally, it knows what is the current index, and it gives us the information for that. So here, you're seeing that there are 20 primary shards, the third column, and then you have 20 replica shards. And if you scan through the last column, the node IDs are all different. What that means is these shards are getting set up across all the, uh, spread out across all the nodes within the cluster. The cron job that I mentioned that takes care of rolling over the index whenever certain criteria is met, this is an example of it. So here what I'm doing is I'm asking Elasticsearch to roll over to a new index if certain criteria is met. Right? So for example, if I say max document, if it has breached the 1,000 records, then just roll it over. So let's see, I'm running it in dry run mode, so it will not actually create the index, but it will say whether my conditions were met or not, and also if it was met, then what, is, what would be my new index? With that, I'll hand it back to Balaji to take us through the metrics pillars. Thank Thanks, Naga. So look at the, let's look at the metrics pillar. Um, let me actually hand it, okay. So there's a lot of different metrics you can actually capture and report for your system, right? Starting with system resource metrics like CPU memory for your parts and nodes. There's a bunch of AWS resource metrics such as like CloudWatch metrics coming out of RDS, DynamoDB, and several resources. And then transaction metrics which is specifically talks about your 
You know, we, in the industry, we call it RED, right? Response, response rate, error rate, and duration. So today, we're going to specifically talk about the RED metrics, the problem we had, and how we solved using streaming pipeline. So this is a where we had a year ago. So as I said, our team likes the log management service so much that they started building monitoring around it. So uh, each, log, I mean, each transaction is usually represented by one or more logs, and the log usually contains the status code and also the response time of the transaction. So the team knew that we can extract these red metrics using the logs. So they started writing uh, scheduled queries on top of our log management system, and then that queries actually runs every minute and then and pushes those data to an S3 bucket. And we had Lambda, which actually pushes those data into our time series database, where we used as a dashboards and alerts. Everything was working fine until that everybody started liking it. They, everyone started writing their own queries, and we started overloading our log management system. So uh, it, it went to a point where the live, um, real-time log searches where people are doing as per troubleshooting were also impacted. So we asked every team to now use 10-minute interval instead of one-minute interval. So we started doing 10-minute interval. Even that, we had thousands of queries running at the same time competing for each other. So as we are, they are running a 10-minute interval, we also saw skipped jobs. So our detection, the metrics we are you know, receiving in the time series database were at least 10 minutes delayed, if not more. So we knew that we have a problem to solve here. So when we are working on the distributed tracing solution using Rager, what we found was the traces themselves actually has these details. Like each span actually had the status code and also the response time in a consistent format. So we knew that we can probably take advantage of that. And we also know that we could actually even tap into those metrics right in the source rather than waiting for the backend. So we created a metric extractor proxy. So it's a proxy running as a sidecar inside your pod, which actually it's in between your application and the um, Agar agent. So traces pass through it. So that extractor actually extracts these metrics, aggregates locally, and then sends to a Kinesis pipeline. And we also had a master aggregation running as a fling job which actually aggregates across parts and nodes, and we made it available in the time series database. So what we found was what it took more than 10 minutes for us to get the metrics, now we are seeing every 30 seconds or even uh, sooner than that. We, do not, we don't have any capacity constraints because we do have auto-scaling for Kinesis. We'll talk more about it in upcoming slides. Um, so I'm going to show a quick demo. It's a static demo. It's not going to be as interesting as what Naga showed, but it definitely shows some of the you know, benefit we are getting out of it. So the top three graphs actually represent the, um, you know, the data coming out of our previous uh, log-based um, pipeline. The bottom three actually shows our observability new pipeline um, using Kinesis. So the first on the left most, uh, on the top left is the, TPS numbers, as you can see, the dots are actually separated every 10 minutes or more than that. On the bottom, you see it at least coming, at, coming every minute or even actually 30 seconds. The second graph shows our error rate. So you can see some dotted lines, which means it's gaps. You don't see any data for that period of time. That pretty much like you're flying blind during the time. You're not getting any metrics out of your system, whereas our new pipelines are actually showing continuous metrics. So definitely we saw a 10-minute you know, reduction in our MTTD because of this new pipeline. So the last pillar log, I'm going to let Naga to talk about it. Thank you, Balaji. So logs is something everybody would be familiar with. 
It's been around for years, right? It's the primary source that we use whenever we want to troubleshoot any issues, right? But with the container, it, it, there are quite a new set of challenges that we need to account for. So in the EC2 instance, you typically have one instance of your app running, but in Kubernetes, you may have three or four pods running in a single node. What that means is your log throughput has increased by three or four times, right? Not only that, even the log actually needs additional Kubernetes context. With the, the pods coming up and down, it's very hard to keep a constant static set of information which you can later query by. So you need to have a dynamic mechanism to extract this uh, dynamic information like the pod name, pod ID, the cluster name, namespace name, et cetera, and enrich each log event with that information. Next one, the way too many logs. Uh, it's not something specific to container, but we, as developer, we log something that we think we'll use it in the future, but we never use them, right? And we never bother to go back and remove them. And the last one is uh, sometimes with the direct point-to-point -point connection with the log backend stored, what we observed is because of the spiky load pattern, the log backend system may not be scaled sufficiently. Right? So there was high chance of us losing the logs in that cases. So we solved these problems using the log, log streaming pipeline. Let's take a look at that. So this diagram might be familiar to you by now. Uh, it's the same diagram that we shared uh, earlier, but specifically for log, we use FluentD, which is a unified logging layer, and it's open source and it's also part of the CNCF projects, right? So FluentD is a unified logging layer where you can provide input like, what are the log files to tail, right? What kind of enrichment I want to perform? And then ultimately, where do you want to ship this log to, right? In our case, we are sending it to the Kinesis stream. So from the Kinesis stream, you have Firehose, and Firehose directly interacts with the log backend to send the log there. With the current configuration of FluentD that we have and some expensive regex, and with a single worker, we are able to achieve close to 2,500 records per node level, right? So any app team, any app that logs less will directly get the benefit of sending, shipping the logs to the log backend without any configuration at their end. Now, for services that log more uh, per pod, so for example, if I have a service that logs 2,000 records per second, so if I put together three or four pods, that means I'm easily breaching the, the, the FluentD limitation that we have. So for that, we are using the Amazon Kinesis Agent Sidecar. So it's a library that is available as open source in AWS Labs Git repo, but we had to customize that to make it work in the container world, right? So as part of the customization, whenever the container starts up, it pulls down the uh, Kubernetes information using the downward API. Things like the pod name, namespace name are automatically pulled down and it's available as input for when the Kinesis agent starts up. With Kinesis agent, uh, we are able to support close to 5,000 records per second per pod. Right? So if you have three pods running, then you have 50, it, it has capability to support 15,000 records per second. 
Now, with the stream in between, the Amazon Kinesis stream, we now have option to tee off from there, add multiple consumers, and do any kind of log analysis that we want. Also, the log filtering that I mentioned earlier, where teams log too many, in production, uh, we have a transformation lambda attached to the fire hose, where if you see any log in debug or trace mode, you can just drop them. You don't even have to send it to the log backend store. You can also do a enrichment, right? So uh, we use similar pipeline for uh, shipping all the ELB logs as well from S3 bucket to our log backend. Now, ELB logs, it has the account and the load balancer information, but it doesn't have some of the metadata that we store in our own CMDB, right? So as part of enrichment, it adds account name, application owner information and all, which then makes it easier for the app team to query by. Also, one other requirement is for the, uh, the compliance requirement, where some of the logs are only needed for storage purpose and not needed for searching. So for, for that reason, we can directly send the data to S3 instead of storing it in our log backend store. The other thing that I mentioned about point-to-point -point with log backend, here in the firehose, what happens is if, the, if it finds out that the log is not able to catch up with the request, it actually puts the uh, failed events into S3. So we have a process running in Lambda, which then picks up these failed, no, failed records and then pushes it back to log backend whenever it is, uh, uh, whenever it has recovered. So one important aspect as part of that pipeline is uh, auto-scaling of Kinesis stream, right? So think of this as how you have EC2 instance, you scale up whenever your load increases. There's something of similar concept that has to be done uh, that we need to manage, we in the sense the, the application owners. Right. So Kinesis consists of shards, and each shard has a max ingestion rate of 1,000 records or 1 MB per second. Right. So, uh, and also the pricing of Kinesis is actually based on the number of shards that you have, irrespective of whether you use it or not. With, uh, in uh, some of the services that we have, it's, the load pattern is very spiky. So for example, uh, sometimes, once in a week, we have close to 800 megabytes per second throughput of logs, and in sometimes uh, the rest of the day, we just have 80 megabytes per second, right? So we can't simply say, hey, let me create this stream with 1,000 shards and then let it run. It will directly impact. It won't be cost effective. So we want a dynamic way to scale based on the load. So for that, whenever there is a Kinesis stream created, Behind the scene, we create a couple of alarms to monitor the ingestion rate, both the incoming bytes and the incoming records. Whenever it breaches the 70% threshold, we automatically trigger the Lambda, which does some basic validation, calculates the metrics, pulls the metrics from, uh, for the Kinesis stream, and identifies how much it has to scale by. So once it determines that number, it invokes the task that is hosted in AWS Fargate, which actually does the scaling. So the input for that task would be, this is my stream name, this is how much I want to scale it by. Apart from monitoring the ingestion rate, one other important aspect is to find out the hot shard. Right? 
Hot shard is a scenario when only few of the shards are overwhelmed and some of them are not getting any traffic, right? So how do we monitor such scenario? One way is to kind of set up alarm for each and every shard ID that is there and set up a, a monitoring for incoming bytes and incoming records. So for example, if I have a stream with 1,000 shards, then I will have to create 1,000 alarms to monitor each and every shard ID, right? So 1,000 alarms for incoming bytes and 1,000 alarms for incoming records. So that's not effective, right? And the problem worsens when you scale up or scale down. So all of those shard IDs go away and a new set of shard ID come. So what that means is you have to recreate all of your alarms again. Instead of that, what we found effective is we can set up the alarm for the right provision throughput exception at the stream level, right? So that is the exception that gets triggered whenever the stream capacity is breached. So it's not the overall stream capacity is breached, but specific shard, if it's uh, overwhelmed, then it triggers that alarm. Now, once we have that alarm, it again calls the same lambda, but now it knows that it queries all the, the shard met level metrics, the ingestion rate, the incoming bytes, and all, and then finds out what is, which one is the hot shard. Once it determines that, again, it invokes the task on the AWS Fargate, which then splits that shard to make sure that it has increased the throughput. What we observed so far is it is much faster to scale in whole number multiples compared to fraction. So if, for example, if I have to go from 10 to 20 shards, it takes three and a half minutes. But if I have to go from 10 to 15 shards, it takes to close to four and a half minutes. Uh, we have added a reference link. Uh, here all the open source library and some of the uh, common links that we used uh, is documented here. Please feel free to access them after this session. I leave the platform open now for any questions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I can take that. Um, so the way the, the new shard gets created, it's actually there is a split and merge concept, right? So whenever you want to go to whole number, 10 to 20, it's an easy split. So there is, uh, you break down each shard into two. But in case of uh, 10 to 15, you have to scale up to 30 and then uh, merge them together. So that is why it takes more time to actually go uh, uh, fraction multiples. Sorry? Yes, so we have uh, three instances of master nodes, which is, and then, as I mentioned, right, about 20 nodes of uh, data nodes to manage the cluster. Yes, please. Uh, you mentioned uh, with your VPC and your tunneling in. Mm -hmm. So the demo that I showed, it was only for our team. Uh, so we don't give direct access to Kibana because it will then overload the, the searches and also impact the right throughput, right? So this was only for the demo, this access. We always suggest user to use the Agar UI to query the, the trace information.
Yes. I'll, yeah, I'll take that. So, so we do have a um, strict retention policy, 30 days, but there are some cases where we, for security reasons, we have to store for like 365 days. So that's what I think one of the use cases we are solving for is just for retention purpose, for security compliance, you don't need to be in a costly log indexer and search tool, right? So we are actually looking at S3 buckets to just store it. But for things which we search, we have a strict ret and retention policy of 30 days, and after that, we'll just roll out. Yes. Why are you getting half stars? Shouldn't the KPL handle that? Give you the random uh, purchasing fees? Yeah, uh, so it does. So in our use case, we don't have it uh, because the KPL, as you mentioned, ensures that it is distributed across the, the shard. But we still want to monitor it because if there is any consumer which is out in the wild, start sending data, and they did, don't implement the, uh, directly use KPL, but use some other way of sending data, then we'll be in trouble. So that is why, as a precautionary measure, we have that stream. And also that stream is used for multiple services, right? So you don't want one consumer to impact the rest of the service. Yes. Yeah, so we don't have any auto scaling. Yeah, no. Yeah, we don't have any auto scaling. Did you take any look at doing any auto scaling, or was it just easier for the cost perspective? Yeah, so we, yeah, I think we, we pre scaled it. We could scale down, but I think the amount of time it takes to scale back up, it doesn't make any sense for us, so we just scaled up. And we actually have 350K transaction per second limit right now. Yes. In the regex, yes, uh, sorry, in the sidecar, we definitely use regex uh, mainly to determine uh, timestamp formats as well as multi-line. But even with those regex, it's uh, still able to scale. I think the number was close to 500 milli per second when you want to transfer close to 5,000 records. So it's still fine. We, we just say that, hey, your service is logging these kind of logs, and that's why it's taking uh, this much of CPU. So it takes its own load, right? Yes. Definitely, yeah. Right. So if you run, start running more complex regex, we start seeing drop in the throughput. Right. So you got to be careful with what you run. Yeah, so uh, the FluentD is used for to transfer all kind of logs, the cluster level logs, as well as the app logs. So behind the scene, we use the Docker log driver. So what, doesn't matter what log format the app generates, it always formats in a JSON. So we take that as an input, decorate with the Kubernetes context, and then ship it as a JSON to our logging backend. Yes. Would you be able to share a, a tracing solution, like the monthly costs that you have to that? Yeah, so I think, let me think, I think it's around, uh, it's, it's too early for us, but I think I can guess that it's close to like 100K uh, yeah, per month. If you have to have run like full scale throughout 30 days. Yeah. But I think, I think what we are looking at cost from a cost perspective. I think it's not just a hosting cost, but also like if you ever have to go for a third party, it also comes with licensing cost. And some of the third party vendors are all actually expecting us to run the satellites for them. So that also comes with hosting cost. 
when we compare the cost, we compare everything, and it seems like this is actually much better from overall. So we have one master cluster for production and one for pre-production. So we, so. Sorry, I couldn't hear the question clearly. Right. I think ideally we want to do that because across Intuit, when you trace the transaction between not only by your team but also across other services, you need to have one single stop UI to go through. So it's actually better to actually have one cluster for entire company because it's, we don't want to distribute that in across siloed uh, storage. Uh, so the Agar UI, it's pretty much open. So at Intuit, we give access to logs, traces to everybody. We don't um, authenticate or authorize that. So because all of them need that information. But uh, just to add to what Balaji mentioned, uh, we have the Agar agent, which is always configured at the pod level, right? But then you have the Agar collector, which is at a centralized place. And as and when it detects there is increased throughput, then it will scale horizontally to support that load. So we have not observed any kind of dropped records uh, so far, but we'll always monitor it. Yeah. Oh, so back to your question. Yes, we do actually do auto scaling of the collector service, not the backend Elasticsearch. Yes. Yes. Yes, so, yes, I agree. So Acre Collector doesn't support tailbait sampling, but what we are exploring now is Open Telemetry Collector. So Open Telemetry Collector does support tailbait sampling, and we actually already have successful POC done with Open Telemetry Collector running, which can send it to multiple backend services. One could be Acre, another could be uh, some other vendors which we could easily POC. So that actually gives us a great opportunity to do like multiple POCs at the same time without actually making any changes to the client. So open elementary collector is the way to go. Yes. How do we handle PIA data? So that is the responsibility of the app team itself. So for us, um, yeah, it's a transparent, right? So we manage the pipeline and make sure that it's, it is shipped to the uh, log backend, but what gets logged, that's the responsibility of each and every app team. But, but we do send um, as logs to our security backend, so they do have you know, regular queries running to figure out if there is any PI there that we'll actually alert, get alerted. Yes? Yes, I think that's one of the things which we are trying to open source. Uh, but it, we will definitely will be open sourcing in the next month or so. We just released it after we built the Agar uh, distributed tracing engine. So we'll, we'll probably add the link back to that same link we actually provided. So as long as you're using open tracing library and generating traces in open tracing standard, it will work. Yeah. Which one? 
Oh, yeah. Yes. The access, uh, no, so right now it's just emitting whatever is there in the header, and these tags are something that is configured by the users, by the app team, so they are sending it, so we are not uh, filtering anything at this point in time. Eager with Logstash, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. We'll check out and find it. Yes? Okay, so it's like automatically detecting issues. That's a good use case, but as I said, I think if anytime you start relying on locks and traces to detect issue, you're actually looking at aggressive um, latency, like uh, you're, you're expecting to be delivered, the metrics to be delivered, the traces to be delivered like within a second. So putting that use cases will put more pressure on us to be delivering these traces more aggressively. So that's why we focus on metrics. We metrics, we have a very high uh, SLA to be delivered within 30 seconds. But traces and locks, we have some flexibility like a second or like, uh, we have some flexibility like within a minute or two, we can actually have it. So I think it's, we're not building those use cases, but definitely if you're, I mean, if you're willing to actually keep that aggressive SLA for traces, you could definitely build it. Great. So we'll be here around for the next 10, 15 minutes. If you have any other questions, please, please, please just stop by. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thank you so much. Thank you.